Why does liberalism work? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Deirdre McCloskey. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre is a distinguished professor emerita of economics and of history and professor emerita of English and of communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Trained at Harvard as an economist, she has written 20 books and some 400 academic articles on economic theory, economic history, philosophy, rhetoric, statistical theory, feminism, ethics, and law. One of her books, Why Liberalism Works, How True Liberal Values Produce a Freer, More Equal, Prosperous World for All, will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Deirdre, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, I'm always glad to be in Canada, and I may move there soon. Perfect. <laughs> Good as intro as any other. We're, we're, we're happy to have you on the podcast, and we'll also be happy to have you in, in Canada if you make your way up here. So, oh, Canada. Deirdre, we, we base each episode around sort of like a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our, our main question today is, why does liberalism work? And of course, for these answers, we can turn fully to your your book, Why Liberalism Work, because it's yeah. full of great stuff and certainly establishes what the title claims. Um, more than we can go through here, certainly. But I do want to focus on a few specific areas of the book uh, today for everyone to get a feel for your claims and, of course, the passionate arguments you make for, for liberalism. So I'd like to start here. The first part of your book is titled, You Should Become a Humane True Liberal. This strikes me as a section that can not only apply uh, as an appeal to those who our fellow liberals feel need convincing of our point of views, but it also seems to be a good reminder for those who already consider themselves classical liberals or libertarians. All that to say, what do you mean when you say both a humane and true liberal? Well, yes. Um, The problem is that there's a temptation in what we call in the States, and I think you do it in Canada too, Although I think you're more, you you understand it much better. I mean, in the Canadian political situation, it's easier to say just liberal. Whereas in the United States, the term has become crazily corrupted to mean social democracy, which, you know, I, I don't hate, but is not what I think we ought to do. And so we've adopted this word libertarian. And the trouble is that um, I have to say, especially among male libertarians, it tends to to um, uh, um, to uh, social Darwinian nastiness. You know, screw you. You're poor. That shows you're incompetent. I hate you. It tends to be the tone. And I think, you know. As a Christian, I'm an Anglican, uh, uh, and as, as a Hindu or as a as a nice animist, <laughs> I don't want to be nasty to people. I think the key to classical liberalism, and its its charm, its its ethical charm, is that we don't hate anyone. Right. Whereas every other political philosophy has a villain. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, of communism, it's the bourgeoisie, and 
In the case of fascism, it's the Jews, you know, whatever. And we take, I, I'm working on a, a book called God in Mammon, um, a, 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 a public theology for an age of commerce, which is aimed at, at theologians. And that's the theme, that, look, liberalism doesn't have to be nasty. It can be, in conventional terms, Islamic or, 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 or green Christian in its concern for the poor and the handicapped and so forth. Uh, it's just that we, we don't want to treat the poor and the handicapped as children. Right. We want to treat them as adults. And indeed, I've, 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 just, just, uh, I've started to say that liberalism could be called adultism. Hmm. Again, not uh, sort of a fatherly adultism where you where you sit where where you say to your son, "Shape up, you jerk! Come on, act like a man." No, I mean that we treat people with proper respect. We don't corrupt them. Look, if you're conservative, you tend to treat the poor and and the handicapped as bad. If you're on the left, you tend to treat them as sad. And I don't think either sad or bad is how we ought to think about our other people. Right. That makes total sense. And and diving a little deeper into this and, and, and your view on liberalism, in, in, indeed, in the first chapter of the book, right out of the gate, uh, after the introduction where you talk about inhumane and, and, and true liberalism, you you also use the word fault to describe areas of the liberal mentality that tell people liberalism is good simply because it produces good results. So that's more of a utilitarian perspective. So is the approach, is this sort of utilitarian approach that just purely focuses on results, not one that leads you to more of a wholesome liberal view in, in your mind? I think it's a danger. Look, when we're designing off-ramps, on you know a highway, uh, you've got to think in engineering utilitarian terms, because there's a balance. If you make the the curve too sharp, <laughs> there are people are going to die. To they are going to go have accidents. If you make it too wide, you spend too much on land. Right? You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a there's a trade off, and there are trade offs in life needless to say, and a lot of them should be approached as utilitarian calculations. But on the other hand, there's a sacred in life. I speak as, a, as an Anglican. There, there's a, there are things that it's, um, it's wrong to trade off. You know, we, we shouldn't be saying in supporting Ukraine, for example, and its battle against uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, Putin's, um, Putin's fascism, we shouldn't say, well, let's see, it's in our self-interest to help Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> self-interest is not really the issue here. So I, I, I think there... I think there are consequentialists, as the philosophers say, justifications for 
liberalism, namely that it's enriched us all, the the poor most especially your your poor ancestors and mine. Mm-hmm. I take it you're not descended from the crowned heads of, of, of Europe. I certainly am not. Um, so, but there's there there's a deeper case for treating everyone with love and dignity. Right, and when I read about your your views on sort of the uh, the consequentialist or utilitarian perspective, and and you wanting to be careful with that. It first occurred to me to say, well, wait a minute, of course, you did a lot of work on, on the great enrichment. But then, of course, my, my second thought was that, indeed, you're also very careful there to be clear, it seems, that, you know, it's not about capital and institutions only in, in, in that situation that, that we call attention to. It's actually about people's values. So, so there, I think it's a very nice, consistent connection. Well, I, you know, consistency is not the only intellectual virtue. <laughs> but it's <Certainly> not. <laughs> one among a number. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, that's right. My, my claim is actually that institutions and capital and so on are derivative from ideology. That when you've got the idea of everyone being at liberty to the, to up to the next person's nose, as, as we say, consistent with other people's liberty, then the other things follow. And if you don't have that, they don't follow. The, the constitutions of the Soviet Union, there were three of them, they kept slightly changing them, are beautiful documents <laughs> which say, Oh, we, of course, there's going to be a free press, and we wouldn't think about breaking into your house in the middle of the night to take you away to the to a concentration camp. Right. Yet, of course, since all three of them, 1924, 36, and 1974, were being implemented by thugs like Putin, well the result was not a free society. Mm-hmm. So I claim that it's not just that institutions um, are uh, only part of the story. That's, that's I, my, my, my claim is somewhat more radical, that everything depends on ideas, ideology, ethics, one's, um, one's practical commitments to treating other people as free adults mm-hmm. and and that 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 caused the modern world you can you can have an enlightenment of reason like the french enlightenment and that's very nice but that leads to central planning it leads to the idea that smart people in ottawa or washington can decide our lives and and the, it's the Scottish Enlightenment. It's the blessed Adam Smith. I always cross myself when I mention Adam Smith. <laughs> right. uh, um, uh, it's it's the Scottish Enlightenment. It's the it's it's the Enlightenment of liberty. The other half, as Hayek said, um, that's that's the that's the the secret sauce mm-hmm. of 
of the modern world. And, and I'm pushing further on exactly that thought, I, I, uh, actually, as far as the secret sauce and so on and so forth. A lot, a lot of folks uh, that, that do, you know, um, call themselves um, either mere liberals, libertarians, classical liberals, whatever, people, people that le- lean dire- that direction, if they're going to talk about our material riches today, um, a lot of people sort of hand in hand associate liberalism itself with the idea of, quote, capitalism. And I love the way you, you yeah. keep putting it in quotes in your writing, and we'll get to that in a second. And, and of course, a lot comes with that loaded term. Uh, to that you say, and I have a quote from you here from, from one of the chapters in your book, capitalism is a scientific mistake compressed into a single word, a yeah. dramatically misleading coinage by our enemies, and still used by the sadly misled among our friends. It's actually that last part that's the most interesting to me. Can you please elaborate on why you don't like the idea of the word capitalism itself, but also why the obsession with capital and capitalism is a mistake in your view? Well, yeah, it, it's a mistake. My, my, my friend Steve Forbes has a magazine called, surprisingly, Forbes, and he proudly says in the title, Forbes or advertising, Forbes capitalist tool. And that's like Tory um, or Quaker, which were terms first of contempt by their enemies that then the conservatives and the Society of Friends uh, adopted proudly saying, yeah, we're Quakers. Do we do quake? You know, we shake when, when we, when, 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 when the spirit descends on us and it's that attitude that 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 gets people like like Steve to adopt capitalism. The scientific problem is that I I claim to have shown in my um, trilogy of uh, books, which I call the bourgeois era, as in a scientific way, in, in a serious empirical way, it's not capital accumulation that that made us rich. Capital accumulation is ancient. Hmm. In archaeological sites, you find, um, I mean, very old ones. So, you know, 200,000 years ago, you find Aushulian hand axes, so-called, which are sharp on one end and dull on the other, so you can throw them at, at animals and, if you want, at people. And um, they're by the hundreds. So our caveman ancestors were engaging in capital accumulation. The Great Wall of China, the Roman roads, come on, they're all capital accumulation. Mm -hmm. But what's odd about the modern world is innovation, is new ideas for technology, biology, or institutions. And those come from letting people have a go. Those come from liberalism. So it's this idea, not capital. In fact, I, I, I point out, it's an elementary economic point, that just pouring capital into a country or a, or a neighborhood or something, if it's done without some idea, some new idea of, gee, it would be good to have a restaurant here, or gosh, it would be wonderful if... Uh, Zimbabwe had more school buildings. It, 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 if, if it's just, here's some money, build some buildings, that has sharply diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. 
that's kind of obvious. If you if you 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 have an automobile and you get a second one and you get a third one and a fourth one, your fourth automobile <laughs> is you know it's just an obstacle on your front lawn or something. It's not as productive as that first one. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a scientific mistake. It's because economists think they understand capital. They they love to drag everything under the lamppost of capital accumulation. Right. So so-called growth theory in economics is the study of, of capital accumulation. Human capital accumulation or physical capital accumulation, they, we economists just love to talk about it. But it ain't where the action is. The action is in people's heads between their ears. And, and and as you said, what people can do with what's you know in in their heads between their ears. So so in other words, if what they're allowed to do, allowed to do exactly. And 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 it's crucial that liberalism is the theory of everyone having the same permissions. Mm. It's equality of permission, not of um, certainly not of outcome, and cert- and even not of uh, of uh, what's it called uh, um, opportunity. It's equality of permission. In a free society, women should be allowed to be airline pilots. Right, exactly. So, and if you had your way, I suppose people would focus. Uh, to, if we had to pick a term on, on more free markets, then rather than uh, capitalism and free markets in the broadest sense, freedom of association, Absolutely. freedom to try, Absolutely. and so on and so yeah, forth. And 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 it's I, I've I've uh, come to think of this word permission. Although it sounds like you're granting it, so maybe mm-hmm. it's not the right word. But anyway, yeah, free markets. And then, then what economists do, unfortunately, and have for the last hundred years, is accumulate all these claims about imper- imperfections in free markets. Mm-hmm. Monopoly, informational asymmetry, a tendency to mass unemployment. All this talk of the last hundred years of economics has been about this for free markets not working yet at the same time <laughs> economists have I, I once counted up in since 1848 108 proposed imperfections in markets this appallingly imperfect system has enriched everyone in the world basically uh certainly uh, 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 uh people in canada the united states but people in Botswana and China and all kinds of other places. Mm-hmm. Pivoting us a, a little bit back to sort of back to that uh, hook of the of the humane and, and true liberal, I want to talk about yeah. the liberal sort of on that personal level when, when they look at the society around them, on, on civil society specifically. There are a lot of liberals who feel that on, on the personal side, as long as they're not proactively hurting anyone or, or using the state over anyone else, their liberalism has been achieved. And I know you wouldn't disagree with that as like a good starting point. Of course, people should have that yeah. attitude, of course. But yeah, sure. I, I always get the impression in your writing that even if you don't say it explicitly, that, you know, the ideals of liberalism are much grander than that, a, a little thicker than that, if you will, that it's not about just just having your own quiet life, but it's also how you how you view the other, other folks around you and so on and so forth and what you might bring to that. You know, that's... that's uh... That's something that I ought to emphasize more. And you're and you're right now that now that you mention it, I should talk about it more. Because the big attraction of either co- uh, conservative thought or or um, 
progressive uh, left thought is its emotional appeal. I was, when I was a teenager, I was a a socialist, as many teenagers are, um, and then gradually extracted myself from it. But what we need to do is to give this free society, this liberated society, an emotional appeal. I don't mean just to trick people into Mm -hmm. into doing it. I mean, as as you're suggesting, going beyond um, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, which is, as you said, a good start, um, and a lot better than all other political philosophies where it's, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, right. whether you like it or not. Um, there should be a positive, uh, what's the word in, 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 in chemistry, valence mm. to, to this philosophy. And I think it is, I mean, in my own life, and I'm sure in yours, as Adam Smith said, blessed Adam Smith, um, we have a, a circle of love that extends even to the whole of humanity if we um, have a sense of justice. But love as a virtue has to be confined. You can't really love everyone. Um, I, I, I don't know how you do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can respect others and be just towards them, mm-hmm. but, you ha- but you love your lover <laughs> for a right. start. You love your children. You love your, uh, in my case, my former wife is the love of my life and my children. My two children I love more than anyone else. And they happen to be, alas, the three people in the world I care the most about. And they haven't spoken to me since I changed gender. So that's sad. But love, 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 love. And it's um, it's a much... And, and, and then you've got to implement this love. I mean, our friends on the left say, well, I gave it the office. I paid my taxes. So I don't need to give to charity. Or if someone comes to me um, and is in terrible shape, I don't need to help them because the government will do that. Sort of a French attitude. Mm-hmm. the uh, insult uh, um, I mean in France not I'm sure in in Quebec right yeah uh, <laughs> uh, um, and and in your life you've got to do it see that that's the great commandments of, of Islam or, or, or Buddhism or anything you want or Christianity that that you got to implement. Mm-hmm. You can't just accept fifty thousand dollars for a uh, for a lecture and then write columns in the New, New York Times mm-hmm. in favor of statism. You got to do it. 
Right. And, and, and back to exactly, I agree with everything you're saying there and back to what you're were, you were saying about the sort of the idea that this is a grander, richer vision. There is an emotional appeal. I was once talking with someone that basically said, well, you know, liberalism is great, but the problem is, is that it, it can never have sort of a grander, richer vision that appeals to emotions, you know, like, like a communism, like a socialism. So this person effectively said, well, you know, so at that point, you know, what are we going to do? And I thought to myself, I, I just simply don't believe that because I find that when you get all folks that really feel they are part of the, the rich liberal tradition going, they're, they're always talking about uh, something that at least appeals to, to my emotion and, and really well, sits in my heart of, nicely. Think of the great poem made into a song by Burns, Robert Burns. A man's a man for all that. Um, you know, it's, it's a great song. When I was, when I was t- teaching history at the University of Iowa, I would get 430 kids when I was, when I, and singing, a man's a man for is there for honest poverty that hangs his head and ah, that the coward slave we pass him by, we dare be poor for all that. And that, that was written in the, uh, around uh, 1790. And it's the liberal egalitarianism expressed as against the hierarchy of the old system lord and serf or slave mm-hmm. and the and the, the new system of politician government bureaucrat and citizen higher we were against hierarchies and surely there are plenty of songs i'm always looking and uh, i'm not much of an expert in it but i'm looking in 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 country music which i'm sure has a lot of anti-hierarchy liberal songs, which we ought to be playing on the radio all the time. Mm-hmm. So to, to, as I'm saying, to give this, uh, this sense of, um, of emotional attachment to being a free adult, right? And, and, a free humane adult. And, and as far as that emotional part of, of being the free, free humane adult, generally speaking is the fact that, some people say this is a negative. I've always thought it was a positive. So I'm curious to know your, thought, your, your thoughts. I think as compared to, for instance, just to take an extreme case, you know, authoritarian communism, right? You yeah. know, they have a vision. But I've always found that the fact liberals don't really know or, or frankly care as, as far as the macro outcomes are concerned. Of course, they, they want good things to happen. But as far as being able to tinker and have a specific plan, back to the man of system, sort of that Adam Smith talked yeah, about, yeah. As, you know, as far as liberalism not being that um, – and not caring about that, I think that is actually one of the reasons that makes liberalism not only work, but, but you know, on, on a on a very mechanical level, but also liberalism work on that emotional level too. You really are bringing an idea that people are free and have the quote permission, if we are to use that term, to do what they want. I think that is part of the appeal. Well, I, I'm I'm right now working on a paper which I'm going to present in London in a couple of weeks uh, called um, "The Near Impossibility of Policy." And policy is what modern economists think that they're assigned to dream up endlessly. We're going to have a little and, and, and little policy to do this and do that and blah, blah, blah. And the, as you say, as Adam Smith famously said, the man of, 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 the man of system or the woman of system, Mariana Mazzucato being an example, mm. um, thinks she can move people in a great society 
as easily as moving pieces on a chessboard. And it doesn't even work in an actual game of chess. You can't just move your pieces around randomly. Um, and it certainly doesn't work in, 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 in society. There's a tremendous, um, you could call it parental authoritarianism in that, that you all are children and I'm going to make you do this and that. Um, so there, there, yes, there is a, uh, 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 put it this way, what's appealing about socialism and fascism and all the other um, isms except liberalism is precisely that it has policy, that it has a plan. Uh, we're going to hang all the bankers. That'll accomplish it. We're going to uh, um, we're going we, we're we're, we're going to plan everything. That'll that'll uh, it, in 1917. Um, Lenin wrote a pamphlet called The State and Revolution, in which he said, we're going to make Russian society, indeed world society, into a great factory with guess who in charge, mm -hmm. uh, where everything's going to be by command. And that's, that's, that assumes, as again, Adam Smith in that passage said, that these Chess pieces don't have principles of motion, he said, of their own. Mm -hmm. And they do. And here's one more point that I've gotten increasingly clear about in the last few years. Most of our life, when you really look at it sociologically, isn't run by the state. Now, people like Xi Jinping in China would like everything to be run by the state, and they're working hard to make China completely um, totalitarian, as, as, the, as the word goes. Mm -hmm. But look, you and I are speaking in English now. There's no planning of English. Um, we have uh, rules of, of courtesy and conversation uh, that we use all the time that have nothing to do with the government or the courts. If you, if you, um, you know, uh, ask me a question, uh, um, I don't know, I can't think of any question you could ask that because you're a polite person, but so, so you ask some terribly impolite question, I don't know what it would be. That violates this rule, but the rule is mm -hmm. you know, I can't go to court and put you in jail because, <laughs> right. because you've been insulting to me. Right. right? And, and, and in our marriages, in our, in, um, among the, yeah, with the people we love. Again, it's not top down. It's not planned. And it's not even our individual choice. Mm -hmm. It says, Hayek said, spontaneous orders in the middle. And much of our life is spontaneous orders. Mm -hmm. And we must never forget that. And, that there's a there's a tendency, as I said at the very beginning, for the classical liberals to say, "Ah," oh, and as you said a few minutes ago, "Oh yeah, I'm okay. I I I don't I'm you don't bother me. I won't bother you." And there's a tendency for our friends on the left and right to think of top down. Both are wrong. 
most of our life happens in the middle. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's an excellent to take a that's an excellent place actually to take a break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Deirdre McCloskey today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including John Robson, Daniel Beer, and Rosa Pajarello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Deirdre McCloskey today. So, Deirdre, I think the first half was great. We really jumped in to uh, talking about the idea and your idea that you present in your book uh, about a, what a humane and, and true liberal really is. We talked a bit about capitalism and the term and why, why you don't think that, why, uh, not only why you don't think the term is a, a good term, but also why, why it's, in fact, a, a mistake. I'd like to shift gears a little bit here to, as far as a little point about dealing with the word in and of itself. Of, of of course, you know, we do have a state. We have to deal with that that fact. Um, when I put my anarchist hat on, which is most of the time my hat, nevertheless, we talk about not having a state. But I will for a second obviously say we do have a state. And, and, and how do we deal with that? As far as what the government should do, because this is a big political question. Most questions fall under that umbrella, right? What's the state going to do if it does exist? As far as a humane liberalism that can help people through the state you note in one of your chapters in the book that if you want to help people ultimately and this ties into a theme we talked about before you're supposed to empower people to make their own decisions so when we take that idea and move it to, to the state and government level i would say politically speaking you're in favor of sort of a, a, a humane, a true sort of liberalism that understands that there might be a role for government to perhaps, for example, provide people with vouchers or or subsidies if they're truly poor. For for example, I'm just throwing it out there. But of course, we have to resist, as you said, supplying people with solutions like school boards and so on and so yeah. forth. Is is that fair to say that you say if there is a role for the state, it would be that? Yeah, although although I'm I'm starting to worry about a. Uh a deep problem in human society, I, I must say, which is that we're all bumping into each other all the time. Hmm. And if I write, I don't know, a column for Reason Magazine that's better than your column, you're made worse off. So if we talk about hurt and help as the criterion for good, good, good government, the problem is that just being in a society hurts people. Hmm. It helps them too, but it hurts them. And <laughs> that means that, to go back to the utilitarian point, that we we, we got a serious problem there. So what we have to do is raise to a higher level of thinking about this and just say, what kind of society do we want do we want a society in which people are treated like a bad or sad children on the one hand, or do we want a society, whether or not it's it's got makes people rich, uh, where they're they're treated like adults, free adults, and then then we 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 say, well, it seems to work out pretty well when it's tried out in Canada or Switzerland or or wherever. Now. 
as far as, so, so the role of government, here's the key, here's what I'm saying. The role of government is not protectionism. And that's one of the troubles. Uh, you hear in politics all the time. We're hearing it right now from, from, uh, um, from, from Biden, who I admire, who's, thank God, it's not, not Trump, but Biden. Uh, Biden, by the way, uh, um, stutters, which I didn't know until about five years ago. And he's, so he's my man. Man, Marilyn Monroe stuttered, in case you didn't know. Uh, Winston Churchill stuttered, so that's good. I'm off in favor of that. But he says, we're going to help you all, these people over here. And of course, as Bastiat famously said, there's the unseen over here where you have to tax people in order to get the money to subsidize these people. Mm-hmm. The sort of pathetic case of this is Argentina, where for almost 100 years, or not quite, maybe 80 years, the Argentinians have believed that everyone can be taxed and everyone can be subsidized, and therefore everyone is better off. Hmm. And that's a childish idea. Um, So help for the poor and handicapped. For instance, just to take a really concrete example, I think it's appropriate role for coercion, because that's what government is, to make designers of sidewalks, whether public or private, have a ramp at the corner for people in wheelchairs. Now that's standard. It's standard in in, in our in your country and mine. Mm-hmm. And every time I go across it, I think, well, is that an appropriate um, role for government? And I think it is. Also, you'll notice those kind of irritating little bumps on sidewalks or in airports, lots of public places. And for a long time, I didn't until about two years ago, well, three years ago, I didn't know what they were for. Mm. And they're for blind people with their canes. Right. So that they can feel where the corner is and they don't walk in front of a car. Okay. That kind of delicate coercion is okay with me. Um, Then, of course, there are famous cases of when we should have a government. Here's one that, that I can hardly sleep at night in my great fear of the Canadians invading the United States, <laughs> Maine in particular. Right. I, I, you, you, everyone knows how aggressive and nasty the Canadians are. And uh, at any moment, they're going to invade Northern Maine, which, by the way, they can have. <laughs> <laughs> From a utilitarian point of view, if you want crappy forests with bad land, go ahead. Have, <laughs> have Northern Maine. <laughs> but, but, but. There's a role for the government to defend us. That, by the way, is practically the only justification for the great size of the American military force is to protect us from the Canadians and the Mexicans, because they're the only people who could realistically invade us um, and then, you know, have a small number of ICBMs of a very sophisticated sort to prevent uh, people bombing us. So there's a role for government. I've toyed with anarchism at various times. 
my first politics, actually, when, when, when I was about 15, I was an enthusiast for a prince, Krupp Potkin, mm. a great, uh, unfortunately, anti-property, private property uh, prince of the Russian Empire, who was an anarchist. And, uh, you know, I have, I have lots of friends, and I, I look on anarchists with sisterly affection. Uh, but I, I think going all the way um, is not possible. And in any case, as you say, look, we got to be a little bit realistic here if we're actually going to have any impact. We've got to be saying you don't want to do protectionism, which helps one industry and hurts others. And you don't want to do war, which is the main function of a modern state. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to do this and you don't want to do that. So it's a small competent state. Small competent ideal. Makes sense. Shifting gears to another question, but still in parallel to the idea of really talking about the institutions and, and realities that surround us. One thing that I feel many liberals, you know, at worst purposely sidestep, uh, but, but you know, at best subconsciously downplay is really corporate power. And, and I don't mean here business yeah. at a large scale. That's not what I mean. I don't mean, you know, someone creates a business and they get more money doing it and more people are buying their hipster bar of soap yeah. and they get rich. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, more, right. I'm more talking here about entrenched power of oh, yeah. the corporate world in the state and with using privilege to keep others at bay and so on and so forth. Do liberals need to do a better job at not only attacking the state, because that's the main focus, but also yeah. other actors that have economic and social power and privilege? Because I find in many conversations, even if we are going to talk about unjust corporate power, neo-mercantilism, as Pete Betke said once to me, yeah, yeah, um, right. often people just pivot. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But it's really the state that's the problem over here. Do, do liberals really need to concentrate on that, that whole system of neo-mercantilism, including the corporate power, not just back well, to policy and state? Well, I, I, would, I would actually say, I would actually say that it's even broader than that. We, we liberals should be the specialists in being against coercion of any sort, of a husband over a wife, for example. And we ought to be really eloquent about that. Mm-hmm. Or the Chicago police over black people. Or uh, the government welfare office over poor people, um, backed by the coercion of, of, the, of the police. And precisely when the uh, when K Street in Washington, the famous street consisting of uh, of companies that that help com- other companies uh, lo- lobby Congress, K Street, it's called. Uh, when that gets to the government, it gets to the power of the fist, as Max. V- Weber said in 1919, uh, um, famously, what a state is, is a, a monopoly of coercion in a particular area, geographic area. And that's right. It should be. Uh, we, 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 we want one police force, not a bunch of competing mafiosi um, uh, coercing us. Uh, 
one gang and then another gang comes in the afternoon and another gang in the evening. We don't want that. We want one gang. But it's a gang. <laughs> we got to watch it really carefully because when you give people the power of coercion, it's so much easier than persuading them. It's so much quicker. If I want to persuade you to uh, uh, give me some, I don't know, maple syrup, <laughs> I, can, I can just hold a gun to your head and you, then you have to give me maple syrup. But if I want to persuade you, as again, Adam Smith said, I offer you some of my services in exchange. So it's, um, uh, I'm sort of, as you can see, I'm kind of rambling here. Um Remind me of what we're talking oh, about. Oh, you, you were connecting that how you said I talked about yeah, yeah, power, corporate power, corporate right. power, corporate that's power. Right. I, I I am a now a um, distinguished senior scholar at the Cato Institute in Washington, and I go there a couple of months a year. And what I what's what and the Cato Institute is a um, liberal think tank. Um, and what's amusing about it is down the street, but only about a block away, is a statue of Edmund Burke, the great conservative thinker. And we liberals are not conservatives. And directly across the street is a statue of Samuel Gompers, the great uh, American labor leader. Mm-hmm. And we liberals are not in favor of trade union monopolies any more than of, uh, uh, of private business monopolies. And the next street over <laughs> from Cato is K Street. <laughs> so, so the Cato Institute is right between all the things we disagree with. And you're, you're right. We ought be, because people are they're, they're terribly worried about the international um, corporations. And they're always talking about shoe companies as terrible monopolists. And you're right. They, they get very confused because they think that anything's big is a monopoly. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what's correct is that access to government, to the fist, to, the, uh, to, to that, to the fist. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there is another line of argument that we got to worry about, and that's wage slavery. Our, our friends on the left, I was just arguing with a friend on the left uh, uh, yesterday um, about this term. Uh, and it, yes, it's terribly inconvenient that in some factories, you can't go to the bathroom when you want it. But that should be a matter of entry and exit, not of the exercise of state power. Although, you know, I'm I'm willing to do a little bit of it. It's like being, some of my anarchist friends would say that's like being just a little bit pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm, I suppose I'm willing to have uh, a few moderate regulations about bathroom breaks. And, you know, yeah, the doors in your factory should open out so that people, if there's a fire, they're not trapped. And mm-hmm. I, 
But the problem is that it is a slippery slope. When now there are literally millions of state regulations on the economy. Right. And, and once you go down that road, it's very hard to stop because then Congress gets very proud about we have a program. Right. So I don't know. I don't know. And then you're back to the uh, National Association of Manufacturers and all these other great corporations exactly. that get in bed with that program. And you're, and you're back to, yeah. the, 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 the K Street is the bedroom. Right. Exactly. Our time is in its last swing here, so I want to move us to a couple more points before before we do have to formally wrap up. And one thing I wanted to make sure we got in today was one thing that's happening right now, and, and it's not new because there's certainly been lots of continual discussion about this in circles that I'm close to and I'm sure that you're close to as well. And many would argue that you know this the political realignment that I'm about to talk about, the modern version has been happening for, for quite many years. But, but today there's even more amplified, at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, discussion over the ever widening gap between what some people call as classic liberals or just straight up mere liberals on the one hand now and, and conservatives two camps in the u.s that did decide to play nice for a while for various reasons post-world war ii although there were frictions how how do you ultimately view th- th- this this whole situation uh you know I mean, you've you've known a lot of colleagues over the years who have been part of probably either camp. I'm sure have had good relations, bad relations, friction, and and you lived through some of this time time as well. Do yeah. you view this as ultimately a healthy thing that a lot of people, like for instance, even in my chair, as as younger uh, folks that are within these circles, are viewing this as like, yeah, like we're not mourning that that sort of fusionist split, if you will. What's your take? Uh, well. <laughs> You know, I, I I'm very old, and uh, you're you're right. I've seen seen this uh, sort of the agreement in the 1950s and 60s, which was shattered in my country by the Vietnam War, um, and indeed a lot of radical political movements in the 1960s. Um, uh, the uh, the the separatist movement in Quebec and the Irish Republican Army and the uh, Brigati Rossi and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, a lot of it happened in the 1960s, uh, which in many ways I regard as a glorious decade. By the way, you can tell whether a person's a conservative or not by their attitudes towards the 1960s. Mm-hmm. They say the 1960s is when the rot began. Then you're a conservative. Mm-hmm. If, like me, you say the 1960s is where the li, li, where the liberation began, then you're a you're a liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but bear in mind that there have been worse periods. We were not yet at street fighting between communists and fascists in Weimar in the late 1920s in Germany. Um, We're not yet to the catastrophes of the 1930s. Although there are forces like Putin and Trump and so on who would like us to go that way. Um, You know, speaking of of, uh, my own country, Things were worse in 1861. Uh, 
I don't think there's any 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 question, or for that matter, in 17, 1776, which is notable, by the way, mainly that date, that year, mainly for the publication of the Wealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not despairing about the current situation. Mm. And I think that that um, this that the invasion of Ukraine is is a teaching moment, even for people who don't think a lot like like you and I do about politics and the economy and so forth, because it says, now wait a second, dears, maybe the culture wars between left and right um, uh, or the uh, socialism versus capitalism talk isn't really the biggest question that faces the modern world. It's as though the, the stupid left-right spectrum, we always, we, we liberals are always trying to say, we're not on it, we're not on it. Mm-hmm. It's been turned in a way that fits our program, mm-hmm. turned to be so clearly in Ukraine about liberty versus tyranny. That, I think, is getting through to everything, everyone about except the extreme MAGA Trumpians who are actually pro the Russian, mm-hmm. um, or or the the extreme, um, uh, well, communists on the left, uh, various kinds. Um, I think it's gotten through to them that what this war is about. Is is liberty and imperfectly implemented liberty in Ukraine, and I hope to God, once they defeat Putin, they don't then turn themselves into an authoritarian society. That can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think it's a. I think maybe this this will help to heal. Some of the absurdities of the uh, of the say of the culture war. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm an example of it. I, liberty is liberty is liberty. Being free to change your gender um, is just part of it, dear. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not, it's not even really a a starter for conversation. Should someone be able to do that? Of, of course. I mean, like, why are we even discussing it? Right? From right, the liberal but, point of but, view. But as you know, the, mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the, the right, the hard right, the mm-hmm. kind of fascist right wants to go back, wants women to go back, born women mm-hmm. to go back to the kitchen and, and child raising and this appalling, um, decision by the Supreme court of the United States, um, is, is, is an example. In fact, come to think of it, that's another teaching moment for the left and the moderate right to say, now, wait a second. Do we really want um, women to be serfs of the opinions of other people? Mm-hmm. Or should, 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 should a woman have the right to choose? I think it's also a teaching moment to show that just because a decision was made at some point or a piece of legislation was passed doesn't mean, as, as liberals, uh, you know, 
basically you get to go, okay, great. Uh, progress achieved. We never have to think about that issue or care about it again. That's clearly yeah, not the case. Damn right. I mean, we all thought, uh, you know, I, I supported, supported in a kind of intellectual way, the black civil rights movement, the women's movement, gay rights, and then in 1995, my Anglican God tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, dear, you had all those nice opinions, and I was against the war in Vietnam, mm. but you didn't really do anything about them. Here's your chance now that you've determined to change gender to be a, a, a spokesperson to some degree. Not, I'm not wonderful about it, but a spokesperson mm-hmm. for another kind of liberty. Um, and if you... If you muff this chance to speak in baseball terms, then you're just a jerk. <laughs> you got to put your mouth where your money is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and last question before we head to the formal wrap up here. Our time is pretty much wound down. I just I just couldn't help but noticing as I was going through it that that your book, uh, Why Liberalism Works, it, it ultimately was released in, in 2019, meaning that you were working on it on and, and before that year. I mean, it's it's it's. Int- I asked another um, another guest on the podcast the same question when their book was released in 2019. That was the year right before a bunch of other mayhem started, as far as the pandemic and so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah. You know, as you've gone through the pandemic now and you've seen everything that's happened, there was some you know political sparks turned into flames, and you know lots of anger was ignited through that. Policy went up, down, left, right, whatever else. Lot lots of things happened in the past couple of years. If you were to revisit the book. I don't mean a specific chapter, a line, of course. I just mean the, the overall essence of it. Is there anything you would amplify, adjust, tone down, rethink, or do you say, no, it's, it is what it is? What are your sort of post-pandemic world tectonic well, you know, I, I'm a very slow thinker, and, I've, and I, so I, I don't I, – I think it's unwise to say, ah, I've stated my opinion. Shut up. I don't want to hear about your – and, and – so I'm I'm open to improvement. For example, the, the point you made about the emotional appeal of liberalism is something I'd spend more time on, hmm. uh, because I think it's the artists, the movie makers, the country music singers. The those are the those are where, as we say in country music, that's where the rubber meets the road, and we commentators you and me and, and the others we're just we provide maybe a, a intellectual background music for that emotional appeal of a free uh, society and i might spend more on that because the book was very um argumentative in the way of that liberal economists often are um, or for that matter, conservative economists or, or progressive economists, we're all very sure, at least it seems so, of our arguments today about this <laughs> policy. Um, and uh, so I, I want to spend more time on the culture. Um, and my ideas keep evolving. I mean, this idea of calling it adultism. Mm-hmm. I forget whether I put that that was in the book because it's something that I've just uh, understood 
you know, they, one of the great appeals of, of statism from the left or right is that it's like a family. Right. And we had a nice time, most of us, when we were kids. Mommy and daddy took care of us. Well, you know, you and I need to try to persuade people to want to be adults. Hmm. Because, alas, this is something I also would spend more time on. I don't have any big answer to it, but a lot of people appear to like to be children. The enthusiasm with which the uh, really kind of crazy statist policies against COVID um, developed, we're seeing now the extreme of it in China, which is completely unsurprising. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there, there was passionate enthusiasm for statism on uh, uh, the left-wing TV programs. Mm -hmm. And Deirdre, our our time is basically wound down here, so I want to move us to our formal wrap-up. Ultimately, in each episode, I want to make sure that the the guest ultimately has the last word to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question and their thoughts. So let let me officially ask you then our our, our last wrap-up question, which is, what, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what liberalism is and, and why it works? In, in other words, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us here today with just one, two, you know, or, or three things or just a few things that they ultimately take away, if anything, what would that be? What do you want to leave people with? Well, I want them to read two books, at least. Orwell's 1984 in which, in a crucial passage, the party man, O'Brien, is explaining to the hero um, who's against totalitarianism what the totalitarian future is. And he says, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. And then the other book is by a by a Soviet novelist, once a convinced um, communist, called uh, his name is Grossman. I always forget his first name, and he has a book, a wonderful book, which in its English translation is called "Forever Flowing," and you need to read that too. And if after reading those two books, you're still a statist, say, well, the Canadian government will never act like in 1984 or in Forever Flowing. I don't need to worry about that. Then you're, you're, not, you're not very open-minded. <laughs> you're not thinking very clearly. The state is very dangerous. It can do good things. I don't deny it. And indeed, the support for Ukraine that 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 Canada proportionately is actually doing as much or more uh, as the United States is. I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of that state action. Um, so it can do good things. 
But boy, it does a lot of bad things. Mm -hmm. Enforcing slavery and Jim Crow, just to take one example, uh, uh, and then starting wars and messing in other people's business all the time. So beware of the state. Beware of the power of this monopoly of coercion. That, that's a great place to leave it then. Deirdre McCloskey, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, dear. And now it's hockey night in Canada. <laughs> Cue music. <laughs> the Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.